You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. My guest on this episode of The Spear is Colonel Kim Campbell uh, from the U.S. Air Force. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I think you might be our first Air Force officer, uh, officer or enlisted, that we featured on The Spear. And I want to give listeners kind of a little bit of background. Um, I was kind of looking at the all of the episodes that we had recorded and seeing, you know, where are their gaps? What kind of experiences haven't we covered? And it just kind of struck me that uh, we've had, I think, three or four different rotary wing aircraft pilots on aviators talking, uh, which is a fundamentally different sort of perspective and experience than a lot of the ground combat guys and girls that we've 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 covered. Um, but I realized that there was a missing story um, or missing perspective, and that's the fixed wing aviator. So I am thrilled to uh, to have you on. I wonder if first if if you can start by giving listeners just a little bit of background about uh, about you and your military career and 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 what you brought you into the Air Force. Sure, um, I'm a, a 1997 graduate of the Air Force Academy. Uh, I decided I wanted to go into the Air Force because I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And um, I spent the first uh, few years of my career at grad school in London and then went off to pilot training uh, where I selected the A-10. And I have flown the A-10 for 18, uh, almost 18 years out of my entire uh, 23 years of service. I was in 9-11, uh, or I was at A-10 training when 9-11 happened. And uh, I spent the first five years of my A-10 career uh, back and forth between Afghanistan and Iraq. So it was a busy time for us. I've also uh, done a stint uh, for a year at uh, Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, my husband and I are both A-10 pilots, so they decided if we were going to go together, we were going to go to Fort Leavenworth, uh, which was fantastic and a great assignment for us. Uh, but I've really spent my entire career uh, flying the A-10. I've had the opportunity to do squadron command. I've had the opportunity to do group command. Uh, and I've also had the uh, fantastic opportunity to spend four years at the Pentagon working at a, a more operational and strategic level as well. Oh, um, you said you wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, was it always going to be the Air Force? Did you did you consider the Navy, the Marines? Uh, no, it was always the Air Force for me. Uh, my dad is uh, was also an academy grad, and um, I really... Um, at, when I was in fifth grade, decided that I wanted to be an astronaut. And so it was all about how do I get to that point? Uh -huh. um, and so uh, talking with my dad decided that being a pilot would be the best way to get there. 
And then over the course of flying several years and flying the A-10, I realized how much I loved it and never wanted to give it up. And so uh, I kind of changed my my priorities in life and my uh, desires in terms of uh, just staying with the A-10 because it was such an amazing airplane to fly. So you said you selected the A-10. Um, how does that work? It, when is it sort of an order of merit list um, where you know the the people at the top get to pick their aircraft, or does the Air Force decide for you? It's all about performance, and so uh, depending upon how you well how well you do in pilot training is where you rack and stack, and then you put together your dream list, and uh, and it's also about what air airframes are available at the time. Um, but you start out with uh, maybe a flight of 30, uh, and then it just gets smaller and smaller as you go, as people select different air airframes. And um, and at the end, you just hope that uh, you do well enough to get the airplane of your choice. Okay. And the A-10, what, what, what about it drew you to it? I realized fairly quickly in pilot training that... Um, the formation work was interesting and exciting, but it wasn't really for me. And what do you mean um, and, by that? Well, when you fly real close to another airplane and you're trying to stay in tight formation, um, it was, you know, it was interesting. It was kind of cool, but I really love the low levels where we would get down low um, and navigate. Uh, and then after talking to pilots and really learning more about the missions, there was something for me about the A-10, about supporting our troops on the ground and providing that close air support, as well as combat search and rescue. There's just something that appealed to me about that. Um, it just seemed like a mission that I was, that I really wanted to do. And so that's why I selected the A-10. Okay. I, you know, I will say, um, you know, from an army perspective, it's, it's really the only fixed wing aircraft that you, that you ever experience when you're on the ground and by experience, I mean, you see it, you hear it, you know, you can, you can feel it as it, as it, as it flies by, cause it comes so low. It's not like, um, you know, calling for close air support from a loading aircraft at 20,000 feet or more that you never really perceive, um, other than just the effects of when it, when it, when it drops its bombs, but an A-10 coming in and making a strafing run when, when you're on the ground is, is a pretty remarkable experience. It's pretty remarkable flying it too. It's uh yeah. What is um, it, what is unique about about the experience of flying uh, an A ten versus say any of the other uh, fighter fighter aircraft that the Air Force has had over the past twenty years? The A ten is unique because it was designed specifically for the mission to provide close air support, which meant it was built to take hits while performing its mission. So all of our systems have redundant backups. The pilot sits in a titanium bathtub to prote uh, to uh, protect them from enemy fire, and so it's a you know it's just it's a very reliable airplane. But at the same time, you know when you talk about feeling and hearing and seeing the A10, I mean when you fire the gun in the A10, you can feel it. Uh, the jet vibrates. You can smell the gun gases, um, and you can see the smoke out in front of the airplane. And then you get instant feedback when you hit the target. And so uh, any A-10 pilot, I'm fairly confident, will tell you that the best thing about flying the airplane is shooting the gun uh, because yeah. it's, a, it's an impressive 30 millimeter Gatling gun that's very accurate, very precise, and a lot of fun to shoot as well. So let's talk about, uh, we're going to talk about a story that, that happened in early April 2003, I guess, um, 
you were you were obviously flying in support of U.S. military operations on the ground in Iraq. When when uh, did you get the sort of I guess the deployment order? We uh, we I think we knew we were going to Iraq in early two thousand three, um, and we deployed in March. Uh, of 2003. We actually left a little bit, or we left at the end of February, 2003 and showed up in Kuwait, uh, I think on March 1st, 2003. And so uh, we, we knew that at some point we were kind of just waiting for the deployment order for our unit to be selected. And where was your unit based out of? Uh, I was part of the 75th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron and we were uh, based out of Al Jabber Air Base in Kuwait. Okay. This is maybe going to sound like kind of a silly or even uh, naive question, but when you got the deployment order and you said, okay, you've got to go to Kuwait, does your entire squadron, do you all literally get in your aircraft and fly them? Uh, not all of us. I mean, there are more pilots than there are airplanes, but they're, okay. um, depending upon how many airplanes we take with us, um, there is a, uh, a large group of us that actually fly the airplane from, for us, it was Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina. Uh, we flew there, uh, made a few stops on the way, um, but flew the airplanes all the way to Kuwait. Okay. So, uh, what was the mission then? What were you, I mean, you, you, you know, looking back on it, it seems pretty obvious, but did you have a sense of what was going to be happening and what you and, uh, and the rest of your squadron would be responsible for doing? We had some ideas of what we were going to go do. Um, uh, we sat and waited for several weeks, um, you know, waiting for kind of our our mission to be designated. I mean, we knew we were there for close air support and also combat search and rescue, um, but we just didn't know how far we would be tasked to go into Iraq. We didn't, you know, we at the time we didn't even understand what the scheme of maneuver would be um, as the plans started playing out, and we got information that we would support the army as the army crossed into Kuwait and then all the way to Baghdad. Um, it was pretty, um, it was eye-opening for us in terms of knowing that we would go all the way to Baghdad, um, fairly quickly because there was this, what we called a super mez, a super missile engagement zone around Baghdad of air defense systems. And so for us in an A-10, we're actually designed to operate kind of in the low to medium threat environment. And so going into this environment where there were significant missiles, um, you know, honestly, we didn't, we didn't think that we would bring everybody home. We didn't think we would bring all of our airplanes home. And so there was a little bit of, uh, I guess, initial shock in that. But, you know, you kind of deal with that and you go, all right, it's, uh, you know, it's game time. We're going to go do what we were trained to do. Okay. So by by early April, um, you're doing just that. You're getting sent up to fly over Baghdad in this, in this, you call it the super missile engagement zone. Is that right? Yeah. The super mez is what we called it. Okay. So is that the, was that the first time, uh, that day, was that the first time you had been, uh, flying over Baghdad? Um, we had gotten really close. So, you know, as the army progressed further and further North, so did we. Um, and so we had been flying missions, um, since mid-March and, um, as we progressed closer and closer to Baghdad is kind of where the intensity picked up um, in terms of what we were doing, um, the number of calls for close air support, the number of calls for troops in contact situations really started to pick up. 
um, as we approached okay. April. So what is, is it, um, can you kind of explain how, like the, the mechanism by which that works? Are you, uh, are you up and designated a certain sort of certain piece of the sky to just fly around in and until you get a call from somebody on the ground or are you taking off once you've gotten the call? How does that work? Um, so it depends. Um, there are days where we are tasked specifically um, for a specific unit and we know exactly where we're going and who we're supporting. We would regularly, before we took off, go visit with our uh, GLOW um, in uh, our Intel shop who would tell us kind of the scheme and maneuver for that day and where the forward line of troops was. Um, and we'd understand understand what the army was doing on the ground um, and the unit that we were going to support um, and because all of that information was being passed to us. And then as we got closer to Baghdad, because the situation was so dynamic and changing so rapidly, um, we actually would just go to a piece of sky. Uh, we, we call them stacks. So we would fly all the way up from Kuwait, air refuel, uh, so we could get gas and be ready to go. And then we would have these stacks around Baghdad, a north stack, a south, east, and west. And it was aircraft literally stacked up around Baghdad to provide support so we could get in there very quickly. And so that's when we didn't really know what was happening. We would just be there ready to go. And it was all based on who needed the support, who was calling, and where, where they were located. And were there times when you'd go up and you'd you'd be flying around there and you just wouldn't get a call and then pretty soon you return to base and that's it? Uh, that did happen. And uh, it was frustrating for us because sometimes we would hear the stories of things that were happening on the ground and to come home and not provide any support and bring back your weapons was incredibly frustrating. Um, yeah. We also occasionally, um, when that happened, um, we would call before we left, we would call the Marines as well. I mean, they certainly had their own air, uh, but we would call and see if they needed anything before we made it all the way back. Um, but yeah, there were days where we didn't, we didn't do anything, um, which, you know, is frustrating because you want to be able there, be there to provide that support and make a difference. And so it didn't always happen. When you say you would call the Marines, how, how does that work? And, and, you know, when you're in support of a particular ground unit, are you in direct contact with them? So we would um, have frequencies for uh, Marine units before we took off. Um, the Marines were actually, the air uh, was co-located with us at Al Jabber. And so we would go into their talk before we took off just to understand kind of their scheme of maneuver. And they would give us a, a, some frequencies of uh, a coordinating agency to talk to. And so we would have to get approval before we kind of left the, um, uh, the support for the Army. If, there was, if they didn't have anything for us, then we would contact the coordinating agency. So we were always talking to some coordinating, coordinating agency that would let us know, as opposed to individual units on the ground. Okay. So can you, can you kind of walk us through, um, was it April 7th? Yes, April 7th, yep. 2003. So first question, I guess, were you on the ground and and uh, it told you you're going to be in, flying in support of a particular unit or were you in one of those stacks? We were in one of those stacks um, okay. because at, you know by early April, it was fairly intense on the ground there in Baghdad. Um, it, the calls were coming so rapidly um, that we were just told to take off from Kuwait, fly up to Baghdad, air refuel, um, and then wait in a stack to hold um, 
April 7th, unfortunately, was uh, not a good day in terms of weather. Um, there was weather covering all of Baghdad for as far as we could see. Um, hard to know where the bottoms of the weather was, but we knew that the tops of the clouds were at least up to 10 to 20,000 feet, depending upon where we were. So for us, on April 7th, we didn't really know if we were going to you know, be able to support anyone because we didn't know if we could get down below the weather. Um, and we struggled to even find the tanker to get gas. So it was a pretty tricky day just in terms of weather. Um, and then we just went to the stack to hold. Okay. Are you, and so you said you don't know where the, the bottom of the weather is, but you know, the, the top was between 10 and 20,000 feet. Does that mean you're just flying around in the clouds? Uh, we're trying to avoid the clouds, but we're, uh, we're hanging out above the clouds and it's just, you can't see the ground below. So you have no awareness of, of what's going on. And it's kind of blindly waiting in this stack, um, to get a call. Uh, we didn't, turns out for us, we didn't wait long. Uh, we were in a, uh, in the stack just talking about, you know, what we might do that day. Um, when we got a call initially, from a JTAC, a joint terminal attack controller to just, they wanted us to come look at an area that they thought where some tanks and vehicles were acting as a command post. And, you know, we, we decided we would go to those coordinates and see what we could see, but with the weather, we really just didn't think we were gonna be helpful at all. Um, and then en route to those coordinates, uh, we got the call on the radio that, uh, that from a JTAC again, they were taking fire. They needed immediate assistance, and they declared a troops in contact. Okay, so then what's what's the first step? Well, a troops in contact is one of those calls. I think for any A ten pilot, like you know that you have to do everything you can because guys on the ground are, need help and they need it quickly. Um, it's the kind of thing that gets your adrenaline going, and uh, we very quickly listened to the JTAC provide us with uh, coordinates first. Uh, and then we plotted that on our map. At the time, we're, we have paper maps and grease pencils, and we're just plotting the coordinates on the map. We're proceeding to the target location because we still can't see the ground below, um, and we're listening to the description. And he tells us that um, friendlies are on the west side of the Tigris River. Um, we later, later found out it was a third ID. But they're on the west side of the Tigris River, and uh, Iraqi Republican Guard are on the east side of the Tigris River, and they're firing RPGs into our guys. Um, and so we uh, we know we're kind of envisioning what we're going to see, uh, but we can't see the ground below. So we're plotting the information on our maps and doing the best we can to try to build that picture en route to the target area. And then we get over the target area, right over the coordinates, and my flight lead decides he's just going to do a spiral down uh, below the weather, just try to find holes in the clouds where he can. Uh, he, and he says he's going to go first and then it'll be my turn. So he gets down below the weather and then says, uh, all right, uh, Casey, my, that's my call sign that I fly with. And uh, he says, uh, you can start your spiral down. So I start seeing little holes in the clouds and start my spiral down below the weather and pop out um, below the clouds. They're roughly around seven or 8,000 feet. Uh, so we're fairly low now and uh, so low that I, I can see this firefight happening across the river, which is eye opening for me. I had not seen kind of that significant of an engagement before. And I just I remember seeing flashes and smoke um, 
And so I knew the situation was an, was intense. Um, my flight lead does a, uh, decides he's going to roll in fairly quickly from North to South on a gun run on the East side of the river to try to take out the, uh, Iraqi Republican guard. And he does his gun run and the JTAC says it's not effective that he has to come in from South to North to get underneath this bridge that they're, that they're using for protection. And so we decide we're going to do a few passes, um, to get underneath that bridge with our gun and uh, rockets. It's a very much a civilian populated area. And so we're trying to um, get underneath that bridge without destroying the bridge. Um, and so we decide we're going to do a few passes. At about this time, I start seeing uh, these puffs of gray and white smoke and flashes around my cockpit. And so it's about this time I realize not only is there this firefight happening across the river, but uh, they're shooting at us too. And so we want to get in as quickly as we can. Uh, and then just reassess the situation. So we do two passes each of gun uh, with our 30 millimeter and then also what we have uh, high explosive rockets on mm -hmm. the enemy location. Um, and then it's time for me to set up for my last pass. Um, so I, I set up for my, for my pass. I kind of check the distance from the target, my altitude to make sure my parameters are all set correctly. And then I roll in. And I point my nose right underneath the bridge, uh, hit the pickle button, our weapons release button, and I've got seven rockets. Uh, the entire pod uh, comes out instantly. And then it's time to try to get my energy back. Um, the A-10 um, can be some, uh, have some trouble climbing. Uh, we were fully loaded. We had bombs, we had missiles, we had rockets, uh, fully loaded with gas and, and bullets. And so the airplane is heavy and I'm trying to climb to get my energy back. Uh, to get away from the ground. Um, and at about 7,000 feet, left-hand turn, I just feel and hear a large explosion at the back of the airplane. And I knew I was hit. Um, the nose dumped down. Um, I can see Baghdad below. I can see Baghdad getting closer. And I pull back on the stick and nothing happens. I mean, absolutely nothing. Um, I know that I don't want to eject. Uh, right then, because obviously I think ejecting right where we were just strafing the enemy is not going to go well for me. Yeah. Um, and so I know I have to do something very quickly. And so I quickly try to analyze the situation, figure out what's going on. I've got master caution lights um, up on my the top part of my canopy. I've got a, an entire panel down my near my right leg, and it is lit up like a Christmas tree. Meaning oh, what? Just just sensors telling you, hey, this is yeah. wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Yes. Yeah, so it's got, you know, maybe, I don't know, 30 lights. And on it, um, the lights tell you what systems are wrong. And it's just, there's lots of things wrong with my airplane. But the ones that stand out to me most are the top four lights. Um, some of the most important, which are my hydraulic pressure and reservoir. Um, and when I look down at those lights and the fact that they're on, tells me that um, I have no hydraulic pressure at all. The system is completely depleted. And what's that for, you know, for those of us who don't know, what, what is the, what is, what does that mean? Um, so most of our, all of our flight control systems operate under hydraulics to function. Okay. And so without hydraulics, that is why when I pull back on the stick, nothing happens because I, the system that, that works the flight controls is it's no longer there. 
And so I, I really have one option at this point other than ejecting, and that is a backup system in the A10 called manual reversion. And all it is is just a simple switch, but when you flip the switch, it allows you to fly the aircraft in this mechanical or manual mode of cranks and cables. Um, but the bottom line is it works. And so okay. I flip the switch, uh, pull back on the stick, and the airplane now starts climbing uh, away from Baghdad. Um, it's kind of my first moment that I might actually survive the situation uh, as the airplane finally starts responding to my control inputs. How long is that? How long was that between when you felt and heard uh, the aircraft get hit and when you flipped the switch over to mechanical? Uh, probably seconds. Um, it's you know it's one of those things where you have to react pretty quickly. And it was just, you know, the analyze the situation and then react. I mean, all my training kicked in and I, you know, I didn't have time to open a checklist. I didn't have to time to radio my flight lead to ask for help. I just had to react and uh, okay. flip the switch over to manual reversion. And now the airplane is flying again. Okay. Um, you're still heading North at this point. Uh, yeah, I'm really just right over the target area still. I was in that left-hand turn, and, and so I'm still over the target area. Um, at this point, I radio my flight lead and tell him that I've been hit, and uh, he very quickly tells me to start heading west so that if I have to eject, I will at least eject and ideally come down over the friendly side of the Tigris River. Yep. And uh, so he's very directive with me about what to do next. Um, I tell him I'm having trouble climbing um, because the airplane is still fully loaded and heavy. And so I end up emergency jettisoning all of my ordnance off the airplane uh, over the east side of the river and, uh, and also continuing to put out chaff and flare, which is a system that as you put out chaff and flare, ideally, um, if another missile gets shot at us, it will go after the chaff or the flare instead of my mm -hmm. airplane. Because it's a, it's a struggle to fly the airplane at this point. It's, uh, it's flying. Uh, but it's still very difficult airplane to fly. Had you ever flown it in that, in that, I guess, in the mechanical, uh, under mechanical controls before? Yeah. So we do it once during our um, initial A-10 training. Uh, so we fly on a mission. We will flip the switch over to manual reversion, fly for maybe, I don't know, a few minutes just to understand how the airplane flies. And then that's it. Uh, and we oh, don't ever train to land in manual reversion. Okay. So yeah, uh, you've started banking West, turning West. Um, you've jettisoned your ordinance, um, shooting off the, the chaff and flares. Um, what's kind of the next decision that you have to make? Well, um, my first priority is to get out of Baghdad just because I feel like if I have to eject, my chances of survival and rescue are going to be much better if I'm outside of the city. Um, and so we're really just trying to get our aircraft, both of us, outside of Baghdad without sustaining further battle damage because they're still shooting us at us at this point. Uh, so, but we eventually make it out of Baghdad above the weather. Um, and that's a bit of a relief because we feel like we've got a little bit of a safety net now. But now I have an hour in the airplane to fly back to Kuwait. And I know that my decision is either to um, eject once we get to friendly territory and get picked up by our rescue helicopters, or I can um, fly the airplane back and attempt to land. It's a tough decision. And um, I honestly didn't know if my flight lead was going to make the decision for me. I was going to ask that. Is it, is it your decision or is it your flight leads? Is it a, you know, a, a consultation? I mean, how does that, how does that look? 
Um, you know, my flight lead, he said, Casey, you're flying a single seat fighter. I will back you up with whatever decision you decide to make, um, which was part terrifying and part empowering, right? Um, sure. You know, because now the decision's on me. Um, but truthfully, I mean, I know how the airplane is flying. I know um, how it's performing. Uh, and so to have him have that trust in me and that confidence in me, I mean, that just gave me confidence in myself too, in terms of what I had the capability of doing. Um, and so I decided that um, after flying the airplane for an hour and really knowing how it was doing, I had a very experienced flight lead with me. We had called back to Kuwait, found out the winds were down the runway. I decided I was going to land the airplane. I just felt very comfortable um, with the airplane at that point. Okay. So what, um, I mean, flying it is, is you said, you know, it feels different. It's a different experience under, um, um, you called it manual reversion under this, this sort of me mechanical controls versus hydraulics. Um, you said you, but you had done that for at least a couple minutes yeah. in flight school. <laughs> you said you had never landed. Did you have any sense of how different that would be? The only thing that I knew about flying manual reversion was from my, you know, few minutes flying in it during our training, but also I had talked to other pilots who had flown during Desert Storm who had talked about flying in manual reversion. And so I knew some of the things that they did to help the airplane be more stable. And, uh, you know, people kind of compare flying in manual reversion like driving a dump truck without power steering. And I haven't done that, so I don't really know if it's legitimate, <laughs> but I can tell you it's just the airplane feels very heavy. And okay. when I emergency jettisoned all of my ordnance, the one thing that stayed on my airplane was this electronic countermeasure pod out on the left wing, which meant that the airplane constantly wanted to do this roll to the left. And so anytime I let go of the stick or you know loosened my grip, the airplane would just start this roll. And so it was a constant fight against that. Uh, but I remember the stories from the guys who had flown in Desert Storm and how they had flown the airplane. And so that helped me out as well. Um, learning from previous experience, learning from the war stories of the guys that came before me. Um, but it was still tough flying it for an hour. I mean, I was, uh, by the time I, by, by the time all it was said and done, I was pretty exhausted. Yeah, I would imagine not only psychologically, as, yeah. as I'm sure anybody would expect, but also probably physically, if you're really trying to now, I mean, you're physically controlling this plane in a way that you don't when the hydraulic systems are, are in place. Yeah. You know, I, a flying for an hour back was, I would say mentally and physically exhausting because I didn't know what was going to happen when I attempted to land. I didn't know if I was going to crash, if the airplane was going to survive, if I was going to survive, there were just a lot of unknowns. Um, but I really just had to focus on the task at hand of getting the airplane back safely and making it back to friendly territory and um, doing my best to stay focused on that. Had you, um, you said you had talked to some people who had flown in desert storm and flown under um, or manual reversion. Uh, had you talked to anybody who had ever tried to land with this system in place? No, I had read in um, some books from desert storm about flying the A-10 in desert storm. And I had read stories about pilots that had flown in manual reversion. And there were three situations of manual reversion during Desert Storm. Um, the first, unfortunately, was um, a fatality. The pilot uh, crashed on landing when he pulled the power back and the nose dumped and his airplane cartwheel down the runway. 
The second the airplane was, or the pilot was able to get the airplane on the ground, um, but he didn't have nose wheel steering. He didn't have braking capabilities. His airplane swerved on, on and off the runway several times and it was destroyed and he was very lucky to survive. But there was a third situation with very similar damage to mine where the pilot was able to land the airplane. So I knew there was this glimmer of hope out there um, of a pilot successfully landing in manual reversion. So I just kind of um, hung on to that idea and knew that I could fly the airplane as close to the ground as I could and still have an opportunity to eject if I needed to. Um, That's yeah. I was going to ask that question. When is the, what's the last sort of point that you can make that decision? Um, our, our ejection seats are very good. And so we can eject at zero feet and zero knots and ideally it is uh, still successful. Um, that being said, the airplane can't be pointing towards the ground, you know, where you would eject into the ground. So there are certainly some factors to consider, but our ejection seats are very safe. And so I, I had that confidence that if I needed to, I could still pull the ejection handles. Okay. Um, so can you describe what it was like to actually land the aircraft? Yeah. So I made my way back into Kuwait. We did a controllability check where we make sure that the airplane still responds at a slower speed. I had to get the gear down um, to make sure all of these emergency systems worked. And um, thankfully they all worked exactly as advertised. I was able to get the gear down. The airplane was very responsive at the slower speeds. And so I elected to continue my final approach. Um, at about 60 feet to go, I got into what we call ground effect, which is as you get close to the runway, um, I felt just this kind of burble of air, if you will, where I thought the airplane was going to roll over on its back. And, um, you know, it was kind of that half second of, am I going to crash? Is the airplane going to roll over? Do I even have time to eject? And then I quickly yanked the stick back to the right and was able to level out. Was that still because you had that, um, was it the pod on the left wing? Yes. Yeah, so I had the okay. electronic countermeasure pod on that left wing and it just, it caused some instability in flight. Um, more than I realized as I got into the slower speeds and close to the ground. But I was able to, to fly that out and about 30 feet to go. I mean, I felt now I'm committed and I just, you know, thinking, please let me make it. I got my main gear down and then the nose gear down. And um, relief is not even a good word to describe how I felt when the airplane was on the ground. Um, Were you at that point still worried about, you said, you know, one of the three stories from Desert Storm, the pilot did actually touch down, but then kind of lost control. Were you worried about that at all? I was prepared to, I knew that I wasn't going to have brakes and nose wheel steering. And so I was prepared for kind of any reaction that could happen. But when I got the airplane on the ground, it just kind of went straight down the runway. And um, I knew I had to use, I only had five brake applications with our emergency system uh, to get the airplane stopped and then uh, brought the airplane to a stop. And then it was time to get out to see the extent of the damage. Um, I would imagine that there were, uh, a f fair number of people on the ground kind of there as well. People knowing what was going on and, and, and ready to help if needed, uh, ready to respond if, 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 if you did crash. Um, but then also who were relieved and probably pretty interested in checking out the damage themselves as well. Yeah. The uh, call had gone out about what had happened uh, to my unit. And so maintenance and pilots kind of lined the edges of the runway waiting for me to get back. And, uh, of course the crash recovery crew was there waiting for me. Uh, it was 
a group of Marine firefighters. I remember hopped, I hopped out of the airplane and they're kind of looking at me and looking at the airplane and I'm looking at the airplane like, oh, wow. Like <laughs> that this plane took some hits and still kept flying. It was uh, kind of overwhelming to see the amount of damage that the airplane could take and still keep flying. Yeah. Can you describe the damage? Yeah. So I, when I got out of the airplane, I left, you know, sitting there on the runway, I hopped out and uh, looked and I remember seeing, you know, there was a hole about the size of a football in our right horizontal stabilizer, which is the back tail section of the airplane. And we believe that's where the missile impacted. And then it just sent shrapnel into the fuselage and tail, hundreds of holes in the fuselage and tail from this shrapnel when the missile exploded. Um, the airplane was dripping with hydraulic fluid. Uh, and as I came around the backside of the airplane on the, the tail, it was charred and it was a fire had happened at some point. And I could actually push on the airplane and the, the metal was soft um, because of the, the fire. Uh, we found shrapnel pieces um, up in the wings, in the engine, up near the cockpit. I mean, it just, it did some damage uh, to the airplane. And I, you know, it's just amazing that the airplane can take the damage and still keep going. I'm thankful to the guys who uh, designed and built that airplane um, to be able to support our troops on the ground and take some hits and and um, be able to come back and land safely is pretty awesome. So emotionally. What, 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 I mean, was it just, did the adrenaline just completely drain from your body as soon as you realized, wow, I've landed this aircraft and it's going to be okay? It took a little while. Uh, you know, I, after I landed, I wanted to go see my crew chief, um, who had prepared my airplane to fly. And, you know, I felt like I had to go apologize to him for destroying his airplane. And so I got a ride over to my <laughs> parking spot and, uh, hopped out to apologize. And there was a, Staff Sergeant Ian Morris looking at me with just the big smile on his face. And um, I didn't have to say anything. He said, ma'am, welcome home. Uh, you know, it was very reassuring to see so many people there kind of waiting for me and thankful that I had made it back, um, ready to hear the war story. Um, but it took a while for the adrenaline to kind of wear off. I don't think it did until later that night when I finally kind of decompressed and realized everything that had happened. So when was the next time that you were scheduled to, uh, to fly? So on April 8th, the next day, I was scheduled to sit combat search and rescue alert, which uh, usually means that we sleep, catch up on anything that we need to do. We're right next to the runway in an alert shack. And it usually means that we just hang out and relax, which is probably what my squadron commander intended was for me to have just kind of a day to chill out and relax after the previous day. Um, but as we were taking a nap, uh, the alarm sounded, um, an A-10 pilot had been shot down near Baghdad and, uh, we didn't have time to think. We just ran to the airplanes as fast as we could. We hopped in, got them started, ready to go, launched and just started gathering information. Where was the pilot? What was his condition? What shot him down? What was the threat? Did we have rescue helicopters? How close were they? All those factors that you try to build the picture. And um, we made it about 30 minutes into Iraq before we were told we could turn around um, because the pilot had been picked up by friendly ground forces. So he's very lucky. But, 
you know, I didn't have time to think about the fact that I was going right back to Baghdad, right where I had escaped my own shoot down. I mean, there was one of our brothers in arms who was on the ground and we were going to go do everything we could to get him out because I knew that those guys were there for me the day before. Um, and so there was just no thought of it. It was just was, get right back in the airplane. Do you think that was a good thing for you that you didn't really have time to think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm really thankful I got back in the airplane the next day because, you know, if you sit and think about what could have happened and, you know, I, it's just, I think being able to kind of get, a, get back in the airplane and go right back into it um, really helped me in terms of just not thinking about it, just kind of getting on with the mission. I mean, the war is still going on. There's still very serious situations happening in Baghdad. Uh, calls for close air support and troops in contact. And um, so I think it was just good for me to get right back in the mission and not have a whole lot of time to think about all the what ifs. You know, one of the things that, um, that when I've had the, had the, had the opportunity to speak to a lot of people uh, for, for episodes of this podcast, um, there's kind of an even mix between people who experience something um, and, need to sort of process it there, you know, before they kind of move on before the next mission. I often ask the question, you know, what was the next day like? Um, and then some people who say, you know, I, I just sort of put this out of my mind and I knew I was going to have to come back, you know, and process it when I redeployed, when I was back in the U S. Um, but I just sort of didn't until then, was there a time that you had to come back and kind of, um, uh, and do that or, or, or did, being able to fly the next day sort of obviate that need to come back and, and make, you know, make sure you're sort of okay and process all of that. Uh, I, I think I flying the next day really helped, but I still had to at some point kind of go through and process everything that had happened. Um, I got the opportunity to talk to my husband, who's also active duty military was deployed at the time. And so, you know, there are moments of kind of processing some of it. Um, I had to, is he also a pilot? He, he is, he is also an A-10 okay. pilot. He was actually on the ground working with special forces at the time. Several of our pilots were on the ground working, um, with the army, with special forces in different places to help them. And, uh, so he was on the ground with the special forces and had actually been asleep at the time when it happened. Thank goodness. And uh, so he got a note on his computer uh, keyboard that said, hey, your wife called. She got hit over Baghdad. Give her a call. She's OK, um, um, which is how he found out about it. But, you know, I did get the opportunity to talk to him over a classified phone line. Uh, and so I was able to kind of, you know, at least talk about it a little bit. Um, after I came home, I did a lot more talking about it. Um, and, you know, I think when you go through something difficult, I think the most important thing is the people that are immediately around you. And the guys in my squadron were amazing. I mean, they were my brothers and I knew that they would do anything for me and I knew that I would do anything for them. And so being in that environment and having that kind of support network there, like, you know, everybody just looked out for me. They knew it was tough and, you know, just tried to, um, reinforce that, you know, they were there for me. And, you know, at the same time, we all just also knew there's this, you know, there's a war going on and doesn't stop. Uh, and so we just, we do compartmentalize things. We just kind of push them out of our minds so that we can 
go support troops on the ground, which is the most important thing that we do. And so we've figured out pretty, uh, pretty well how to compartmentalize. And then at, at some point you got to go back and kind of deal with it. You mentioned that, um, you've done subsequent deployments, uh, as well. Did this experience change the way that you sort of conceptualize flying? And I, that sounds like kind of a, a vague question, but I guess, I mean, did it give you, did you, did you feel invincible? Hey, look what I just was able to do. Did it give you more confidence? Did, did it change the way that you flew? Well, I think uh, any fighter pilot will tell you they think they're invincible. Um, but ha- having said that, I mean, the truth is that um, after this mission, I think I really, one, um, it reaffirmed to me the importance of what we do, of supporting our troops on the ground and the fact that we are willing to take risk to support our troops on the ground, to, su- to support the guys on the ground, to get them home safely. And so you really have to evaluate that risk. But when there's a troops in contact, I mean, that's what we do. Um, And to be able to share that and kind of how you process and work through that at the same time, you know, uh, making sure that you protect yourself as well. And so I think it just gave me confidence in the airplane um, that we could really, you know, we, you can take those risks. You have to take smart risks, but the airplane is very reliable. Um, and I think that's one of those things that reassured to me is the confidence in the airplane for the mission that we go do. Well, Kim, thank you so much for, for sharing the story. It's, um, you know, I, as somebody who has, uh, obviously never been up in an A-10 or any sort of fighter aircraft and, and the vast majority of our listeners won't have either. Um, I think you've, you've done a really good job of sort of bringing us into the cockpit, so to speak, during a, a pretty remarkable experience. Um, so I really appreciate you taking some time to, to share the story. Absolutely. I, uh, I will tell you that, um, you know, after the mission, you know, we talk about the things that mean the most to us and I'm coming up on 23 years of service and I am getting ready to retire in May. And I look back over my time in service and the reason I've stayed as long as I have is this just this commitment to support our troops on the ground and know that we can help get guys home safely and be there for them in the worst of times. On the other side of that, I will tell you that the thing that has meant the most to me over my time in service is the response that we get back from the guys on the ground and getting the chance to meet the guys that we help out in kind of these worst case scenarios. And I have a note, um, it's just a scribbled note on a piece of paper um, that some guys left for me um, after flying. And it said, um, thanks for saving our ass over Baghdad. And, you know, that's for us as A-10 pilots, like that's why we do it. You know, that's what matters Um, more than any awards or decorations, like just the simple note of thanks um, is really awesome. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, talk with me today for us to share a little bit from our perspective about what we see. But um, just know that I can speak for every A-10 pilot out there in terms of we absolutely love what we do. There is no greater mission than supporting our troops on the ground. And so I, we really feel passionate about it. And I, I hope that comes through. Yeah, it does. And as somebody who's been on the ground uh, and and had an A ten come in and provide close air support, that's a it's a unique relationship, isn't it? It's uh, 
this bond, I suppose, that kind of yeah. grows up between the ground forces and uh, and A-10 pilots in particular. So thank you very much. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.